0: You're listening to KZOM, Oleander on Public Radio. Hey everyone, it's me, DB. It is December, and it's uh, spooky Halloween. No, no, spooky Christmas. That's that's the right one. I think I think it's spooky Christmas. I'm not sure what's going on in town yet. I haven't seen Dave for a little bit, so uh, after I find out where Dave is. We'll find out what's going on around town. So, happy December. Rate, review, subscribe. Tell people about us. And uh, ask us questions. Send us mail. Uh, just follow the show notes. And uh, we'll talk to you then. Thank you so much. Oh yeah, by the way, Henry Kutner stories. Five of them. Four of them. A couple of them. Here we go.
1: Reading by Greg Marguerite Part one of the Ego Machine by Henry Cutner When a slightly mad robot drunk on AC wants you to join an experiment in optimum ecology, don't do it. After all, who wants to argue like Disraeli or live like Ivan the Terrible? CHAPTER One. Nicholas Martin looked up at the robot across the desk. I'm not going to ask you what you want, he said in a low, restrained voice. I already know. Just go away and tell St. Cyr I approve. Tell him I think it's wonderful putting a robot in the picture. We've had everything else by now, except the Rockettes. But— Clearly a quiet little play about Christmas among the Portuguese fishermen on the Florida coast must have a robot. Only—why not six robots? Tell him I suggest a baker's dozen. Go away." "'Was your mother's name Helena Glinska?' the robot asked. "'It was not,' Martin said. "'Ah, then she must have been the great, hairy one,' the robot murmured. Martin took his feet off the desk and sat up slowly. It's quite all right, the robot said hastily. You've been chosen for an ecological experiment, that's all. But it won't hurt. Robots are perfectly normal life forms where I come from. So you needn't— Shut up, Martin said. Robot, indeed. You—you you bit player. This time St. Cyr has gone too far. He began to shake slightly all over, with some repressed but strong emotion. The intercom box on the desk caught his eye, and he stabbed a finger at one of the switches. Get me, Miss Ashby, right away. I'm so sorry, the robot said apologetically. Have I made a mistake? The threshold fluctuations in the neurons always upset my mnemonic norm when I temporize. Isn't this a crisis point in your life? Martin breathed hard, which seemed to confirm the robot's assumption. Exactly, it said. The ecological imbalance approaches a peak that may destroy the life-form unless— Now, either you're about to be stepped on by a mammoth, locked in an iron mask, assassinated by helots, or—is this Sanskrit I'm speaking? He shook his gleaming head. Perhaps I should have got off fifty years ago, but I thought— Sorry. "'Good-bye,' he added hastily, as Martin raised an angry glare. Then the robot lifted a finger to each corner of his naturally rigid mouth and moved his fingers horizontally in opposite directions, as though sketching an apologetic smile. "'No, don't go away,' Martin said. "'I want you right here, where the sight of you can refuel my rage in case it's needed. I wish to God I could get mad and stay mad,' he added plaintively. Gazing at the telephone. Are you sure your mother's name wasn't Helena Glinska? The robot asked. It pinched thumb and forefinger together between its nominal brows, somehow giving the impression of a worried frown. Naturally I'm sure, Martin snapped. You aren't married yet, then? To Anastasia Zakarina Koshkina? Not yet or ever, Martin replied succinctly. The telephone rang. He snatched it up. Hello, Nick, said Erica Ashby's calm voice. Something wrong? Instantly the fires of rage went out of Martin's eyes to be replaced by a tender rose pink glow. For some years now, he had given Erica, his very competent agent, ten percent of his take. He had also longed hopelessly to give her approximately a pound of flesh, the cardiac muscle to put it in cold, unromantic terms. Martin did not. He put it in no terms at all, since whenever he tried to propose marriage to Erika, he was taken with such fits of modesty that he could only babble. Oh, fields." Well, Erika repeated, something wrong? Yes, Martin said, drawing a long breath. Can St. Cyr make me marry somebody named Anastasia Zakarina Koshkina? What a wonderful memory you have," the robot put in mournfully. Mine used to be, before I started temporizing. But even radioactive neurons won't stand— Nominally, you're still entitled to life, liberty, etc., Erica said. But I'm busy right now, Nick. Can't it wait till I see you? When? Didn't you get my message? Erica demanded. Of course not, Martin said angrily. I've suspected for some time that all my incoming calls have to be cleared by St Cyr somebody might try to smuggle in a word of hope or possibly a file his voice brightened planning a jailbreak this is outrageous erica said some day st cyr is going to go too far not while he's got Deedee Dee behind him martin said gloomily Summit Studios would sooner have made a film promoting atheism than offend their top box office star, Dee, Dee Fleming. Even Tolliver Watt, who owned Summit Lock, Stock and Barrel, spent wakeful nights because St. Cyr refused to let the lovely Dee Dee sign a long-term contract. "'Nevertheless, Watt's no fool,' Erica said. "'I still think we could get him to give you a contract release if we could make him realize what a rotten investment you are.' There isn't much time, though." Why not? I told you—oh, of course you don't know. He's leaving for Paris tomorrow morning. Martin moaned. Then I'm doomed, he said. They'll pick up my option automatically next week and I'll never draw a free breath again. Erica, do something! I'm going to, Erica said. That's exactly what I want to see you about. Ah! she added suddenly. Now I understand why St. Cyr stopped my message. He was afraid. Nick, do you know what we've got to do? See what? Nick hazarded unhappily. But Erica... See what alone? Erica amplified. Not if St. Cyr can help it, Nick reminded her. Exactly. Naturally St. Cyr doesn't want us to talk to Watt privately. We might make him see reason. But this time, Nick, we've simply got to manage it somehow. One of us is going to talk to Watt while the other keeps St. Cyr at bay. Which do you choose?" Neither, Martin said promptly. Oh, Nick, I can't do the whole thing alone. Anybody'd think you were afraid of St. Cyr. I am afraid of St. Cyr, Martin said. Nonsense! What could he actually do to you?" "'He could terrorize me. He does it all the time, Erica. He says I'm indoctrinating beautifully. Doesn't it make your blood run cold? Look at all the other writers. He's indoctrinated!' "'I know. I saw one of them on Main Street last week delving into garbage cans. Do you want to end up that way? Then stand up for your rights!' "'Ah,' said the robot, wisely nodding. Just as I thought. A crisis point. Shut up, Martin said. No, not you, Erica. I'm sorry. So am I, Erica said tartly. For a moment, I thought you'd acquired a backbone. If I were somebody like Hemingway, Martin began in a miserable voice. Did you say Hemingway? The robot inquired. Is this the Kinsey Hemingway era? Then I must be right. You're Nicholas Martin, the next subject. Martin. Martin, let me see—oh, yes, the Disraeli type, that's it." He rubbed his forehead with a grating sound. Ah, oh, my poor neuron thresholds. Now I remember. Nick, can you hear me? Erica's voice inquired. I'm coming over there right away. Brace yourself. We're going to beard St. Cyr in his den and convince Watt you'll never make a good screenwriter. Now! But St. Cyr won't ever admit that, Martin cried he doesn't know the meaning of the word failure. He says so. He's going to make me into a screenwriter, or kill me." Remember what happened to Ed Cassidy? Erica reminded him grimly. St. Cyr didn't make him into a screenwriter. True, poor old Ed, Martin said with a shiver. All right, then. I'm on my way. Anything else? Yes, Martin cried, drawing a deep breath. Yes, there is. I love you madly but the words never got past his glottis. Opening and closing his mouth noiselessly, the cowardly playwright finally clenched his teeth and tried again. A faint, hopeless squeak vibrated the telephone's disk. Martin let his shoulders slump hopelessly. It was clear he could never propose to anybody, not even a harmless telephone. "'Did you say something?' Erica asked. "'Well, good then.' Wait a minute. Martin said, his eyes suddenly falling once more upon the robot. Speechless on one subject only, he went on rapidly. I forgot to tell you. Watt and the nest-fouling St. Cyr have just hired a mock-up phony robot to play in Angelina Noel. But the line was dead. I'm not a phony, the robot said, hurt. Martin fell back in his chair and stared at his guest with dull, hopeless eyes. Neither was King Kong," he remarked. "'Don't start feeding me some line St. Cyr told you to pull. I know he's trying to break my nerve. He'll probably do it, too. Look what he's done to my play already. Why Fred Waring? I don't mind Fred Waring in his proper place. There he's fine. But not in Angelina Noel. Not as the Portuguese captain of a fishing boat, manned by his entire band, accompanied by Dan Daly singing Napoli to Dee, Dee Fleming in A Mermaid's Tale.' Self-stunned by this recapitulation, Martin put his arms on the desk, his head, in his hands, and, to his horror, found himself giggling. The telephone rang. Martin groped for the instrument, without rising from his semi-recumbent position. "'Who?' he asked shakily. "'Who? St. Cyr.' A hoarse bellow came over the wire. Martin sat bolt upright, seizing the phone desperately with both hands. "'Listen!' he cried. Will you let me finish what I'm going to say just for once? Putting a robot in Angelina Noel is simply— I do not hear what you say, roared a heavy voice. Your idea stinks, whatever it is. Be at Theater One for yesterday's rushes—at once. But wait— St. Cyr belched and hung up. Martin's strangling hands tightened briefly on the telephone, but it was no use. The real stranglehold was the one St. Cyr had around Martin's throat, and it had been tightening now for nearly thirteen weeks—or had it been thirteen years? Looking backward, Martin could scarcely believe that only a short time ago he had been a free man, a successful Broadway playwright, the author of the hit play Angelina Noel. Then had come St. Cyr. A snob at heart, the director loved getting his clutches on hit plays and name writers. Summit Studios, he had roared at Martin, would follow the original play exactly and would give Martin the final okay on the script, provided he signed a thirteen-week contract to help write the screen treatment. This had seemed too good to be true. And was. Martin's downfall lay partly in the fine print and partly in the fact that Erica Ashby had been in the hospital with a bad attack of influenza at the time. Buried in legal verbiage was a clause that bound Martin to five years of servitude with Summit should they pick up his option. Next week they would certainly do just that, unless justice prevailed. I think I need a drink, Martin said unsteadily. Or several. He glanced toward the robot. I wonder if you'd mind getting me that bottle of scotch from the bar over there?" But I am here to conduct an experiment in optimum ecology," said the robot. Martin closed his eyes. Pour me a drink, he pleaded. Please, then put the glass in my hand, will you? It's not much to ask. After all, we're both human beings, aren't we? Well, no, the robot said, placing a brimming glass in Martin's groping fingers martin drank then he opened his eyes and blinked at the tall highball glass in his hand the robot had filled it to the brim with scotch martin turned a wondering gaze on his metallic companion you must do a lot of drinking yourself he said thoughtfully i suppose tolerance can be built up go ahead help yourself take the rest of the bottle The robot placed the tip of a finger above each eye and slid the fingers upward, as though raising his eyebrows inquiringly. Go on, have a jolt, Martin urged. Or don't you want to break bread with me under the circumstances? How can I? the robot asked. I'm a robot. His voice sounded somewhat wistful. What happens? he inquired. Is it lubricatory or a fueling mechanism? Martin glanced at his brimming glass. Fueling, he said tersely. High octane. You really believe in staying in character, don't you? Why not— Oh, the principle of irritation, the robot interrupted. I see. Just like fermented mammoth's milk. Martin choked. Have you ever drunk fermented mammoth's milk? he inquired. How could I? the robot asked. But I've seen it done. He drew a straight line vertically upward between his invisible eyebrows, managing to look wistful. Of course, my world is perfectly functional and functionally perfect, but I can't help finding temporalizing a fascinate— He broke off. I'm wasting time-space. Now, Mr. Martin, would you be willing to— Oh, have a drink, Martin said. I feel hospitable. Go ahead, indulge me, will you? My pleasures are few and I've got to go to be terrorized in a minute anyhow. If you can't get that mask off, I'll send for a straw. You can step out of character long enough for one jolt, can't you?" I'd like to try it, the robot said pensively. Ever since I noticed the effect fermented mammoth's milk had on the boys, it's been on my mind, rather. Quite easy for a human, of course. Technically it's simple enough. I I see now the irritation just increases the frequency of the brain's kappa waves as with boosted voltage. But since electrical voltage never existed in pre-robot times—' "'It did,' Martin said, taking another drink. "'I mean, it does. What do you call that? A mammoth?' He indicated the desk lamp. The robot's jaws dropped. That he asked, in blank amazement. Why—why—then all those telephone poles and dynamos and lighting equipment I noticed in this era are powered by electricity? What did you think they were powered by? Martin asked coldly. Slaves, the robot said, examining the lamp. He switched it on, blinked, and then unscrewed the bulb. Voltage, you say? Don't be a fool. Martin said. You're overplaying your part. I've got to get going in a minute. Do you want to jolt or don't you?" Well, the robot said, I don't want to seem unsociable. This ought to work. So saying, he stuck his finger in the lamp socket. There was a brief crackling flash. The robot withdrew his finger. He said and swayed slightly. Then his fingers came up and sketched a smile that seemed somehow to express delighted surprise. He said, and went on rather thickly, integral between plus and minus infinity of sum and two e— Martin's eyes opened wide with shocked horror. Whether a doctor or a psychiatrist should be called in was debatable, but it was perfectly evident that this was a case for the medical profession, and the sooner the better. Perhaps the police, too. The bit player in the robot suit was clearly as mad as a hatter. Martin poised indecisively, waiting for his lunatic guest either to drop dead or spring at his throat. The robot appeared to be smacking his lips with faint clicking sounds. Why, that's wonderful, he said. A.C. too. You're not dead? Martin inquired shakily. I'm not even alive the robot murmured. The way you'd understand it, that is. Ah, thanks for the jolt. Martin stared at the robot with the wildest dawning of surmise. Why, he gasped, why, you're a robot. Certainly I'm a robot, his guest said. What slow minds you pre-robots had. Minds working like lightning now. He stole a drunkard's glance at the desk lamp. I mean, if you counted the kappa waves of my radio-atomic brain now, you'd be amazed how the frequencies increased. He paused thoughtfully. (sniffs) He added. Moving quite slowly, like a man underwater, Martin lifted his glass and drank whiskey. Then, cautiously, he looked up at the robot again. (sniffs) He said, paused, shuddered, and drank again. That did it. I'm drunk, he said, with an air of shaken relief. That must be it. I was almost beginning to believe— Oh, nobody believes I'm a robot at first, the robot said. You'll notice I showed up in a movie lot where I wouldn't arouse suspicion. I'll appear to Ivan Vasilovich in an alchemist's lab, and he'll jump to the conclusive that I'm an automaton—which, of course, I am. Then there's Eager on my list. I'll appear to him in a shaman's hut, and he'll assume I'm a devil. A matter of ecological logic." Then, you're a devil? Martin inquired, seizing on the only plausible solution. No, no, no. I, I'm a robot. Don't you understand anything? I don't even know who I am now, Martin said. For all I know, I'm a fawn and you're a human child. I don't think this Scotch is doing me as much good as I'd— Your name is Nicholas Martin, the robot said patiently, and mine— is eniac 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 the robot corrected capitalizing eniac gamma the ninety-third so saying he unslung a sack from his metallic shoulder and began to rummage out length upon length of what looked like red silk ribbon with a curious metallic luster after approximately a quarter of a mile of it had appeared a crystal football helmet emerged attached to its end A gleaming red stone was set on each side of the helmet. Just over the temporal lobes, you see," the robot explained, indicating the jewels. Now, you just set it on your head like this. Oh, no, I don't, Martin said, withdrawing his head with the utmost rapidity. Neither do you, my friend. What's the idea? I don't like the looks of that gimmick. I particularly don't like those two red garnets on the sides. They look like eyes. Those are artificial eclogite. the robot assured him. They simply have a high dielectric constant. It's merely a matter of altering the normal thresholds of the neuron memory circuits. All thinking is based on memory, you know. The strength of your associations, the emotional indices of your memories channel your actions and decisions, and the ecologizer simply changes the voltage of your brain so the thresholds are altered. Is that all it does? Martin asked suspiciously. Well, now, the robot said with a slight air of evasion, I didn't intend to mention it, but since you ask, it also imposes the master matrix of your character type. But since that's the prototype of your character in the first place, it will simply enable you to make the most of your potential ability. Hereditary and acquired. It will make you react to your environment in the way that best assures your survival. Not me it won't, Martin said firmly because you aren't going to put that thing on my head." The robot sketched a puzzled frown. Oh, he said after a pause. I haven't explained yet, have I? It's very simple. Would you be willing to take part in a valuable sociocultural experiment for the benefit of all mankind? No, Martin said. But you don't know what it is yet, the robot said plaintively. You'll be the only one to refuse after I've explained everything thoroughly. By the way, can you understand me all right?" Martin laughed hollowly. Natch, he said. Good, the robot said, relieved. That may be one trouble with my memory. I had to record so many languages before I could temporalize. Sanskrit's very simple, but medieval Russian's confusing and, as for, eager. However, the purpose of this experiment is to promote the most successful pro-survival relationship between man and his environment instant adaptation is what we're aiming at and we hope to get it by minimizing the differential between individual and environment in other words the right reaction at the right time understand of course not martin said what nonsense you talk there are the robot said rather wearily only a limited number of character matrices possible depending first on the arrangement of the genes within the chromosomes and later upon environmental additions Since environments tend to repeat, like societies, you know, an organizational pattern isn't hard to lay out along the Caldecoos time scale. You follow me so far?" "'By the Caldecoos time scale, yes,' Martin said. I was always lucid," the robot remarked a little vainly, nourishing a swirl of red ribbon. "'Keep that thing away from me,' Martin complained drunk I may be, but I have no intention of sticking my neck out that far." Of course you'll do it, the robot said firmly. Nobody's ever refused yet, and don't bicker with me or you'll get me confused and I'll have to take another jolt of voltage. Then there's no telling how confused I'll be. My memory gives me enough trouble when I temporalize. Time travel always raises the synaptic delay threshold, but the trouble is it's so variable. That's why I got you mixed up with Ivan at first, but I don't visit him till after I've seen you. I'm running the test chronologically, and 1952 comes before 1570, of course." It doesn't, Martin said, tilting the glass to his lips. Not even in Hollywood does 1952 come before 1570. I'm using the Kaldeku's time scale, the robot explained, but really only for convenience. Now, do you want the ideal ecological differential, or don't you? Because—' Here he flourished the red ribbon again, peered into the helmet, looked narrowly at Martin, and shook his head. "'I'm sorry,' the robot said. "'I'm afraid this won't work. Your head's too small. Not enough brain room, I suppose. This helmet's for an eight-and-a-half head, and yours is much too—' "'My head is eight-and-a-half,' Martin protested with dignity. "'Can't be.' The robot said cunningly. If it were, the helmet would fit, and it doesn't. Too big. It does fit, Martin said. That's the trouble with arguing with pre-robot species, Eniac said as to himself. Low, brutish, unreasoning. No wonder when their heads are so small. Now, Mr. Martin, he spoke as though to a small, stupid, stubborn child, try to understand. This helmet size, eight and a half. Your head is unfortunately so very small that the helmet wouldn't fit. Blast it! cried the infuriated Martin, caution quite lost between scotch and annoyance. It does fit. Look here! Recklessly he snatched the helmet and clapped it firmly on his head. It fits perfectly. I erred. The robot acknowledged, with such a gleam in his eye that Martin, suddenly conscious of his rashness, jerked the helmet from his head and dropped it on the desk. Eniac quietly picked it up and put it back into his sack, stuffing the red ribbon in after it with rapid motions. Martin watched, baffled, until Eniac had finished, gathered together the mouth of the sack, swung it on his shoulder again, and turned toward the door. Goodbye, the robot said, and thank you. For what? Martin demanded. For your cooperation, the robot said. I won't cooperate, Martin told him flatly. It's no use. Whatever full treatment it is you're selling, I'm not going to— Oh, you've already had the ecology treatment, Eniac replied blandly. I'll be back tonight to renew the charge. It lasts only twelve hours. What? Eniac moved his forefingers outward from the corners of his mouth sketching a polite smile. Then he stepped through the door and closed it behind him. Martin made a faint squealing sound, like a stuck but gagged pig. Something was happening inside his head. CHAPTER TWO Nicholas Martin felt like a man suddenly thrust under an ice-cold shower. No, not cold. Steaming hot. Perfumed, too. The wind that blew in from the open window bore with it a frightful stench of gasoline, sagebrush, paint, and—from the distant commissary—ham sandwiches. Drunk, he thought frantically. I'm—I'm drunk, or crazy. He sprang up and spun around wildly, then catching sight of a crack in the hardwood floor, he tried to walk along it. Because if I can walk a straight line, he thought, I'm not drunk. I'm only crazy. It was not a very comforting thought. He could walk it all right. He could walk a far straighter line than the crack which he saw now was microscopically jagged. He had, in fact, never felt such a sense of location and equilibrium in his life. His experiment carried him across the room to a wall-mirror, and as he straightened to look into it, suddenly all confusion settled and ceased. The violent sensory perceptions leveled off and returned to normal. Everything was quiet. Everything was all right. Martin met his own eyes in the mirror. Everything was not all right. He was stone-cold sober. The scotch he had drunk might as well have been spring-water. He leaned closer to the mirror, trying to stare through his own eyes into the depths of his brain. For something extremely odd was happening in there all over his brain tiny shutters were beginning to move some sliding up till only a narrow crack remained through which the beady little eyes of neurons could be seen peeping some sliding down with faint crashes revealing the agile spidery forms of still other neurons scuttling for cover altered thresholds changing the yes and no reaction time of the memory circuits with their key emotional indices and associations huh. The robot!" Martin's head swung toward the closed office door, but he made no further move. The look of blank panic on his face, very slowly, quite unconsciously, began to change. The robot could wait. Automatically Martin raised his hand as though to adjust an invisible monocle. Behind him the telephone began to ring. Martin glanced at it, his lips curved into an insolent smile. Flicking dust from his lapel with a suave gesture, Martin picked up the telephone. He said nothing. There was a long silence. Then a hoarse voice shouted, Hello? 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 Are you there? You? Martin? Martin said absolutely nothing at all. You keep me waiting? The voice bellowed. Me? St. Cyr? Now jump! The brushes are—Martin, do you hear me? Martin gently laid down the receiver on the desk. He turned again toward the mirror, regarded himself critically, frowned. "'Dreary,' he murmured. "'Distinctly dreary. I wonder why I ever bought this necktie.' The softly bellowing telephone distracted him. He studied the instrument briefly, then clapped his hands sharply together an inch from the mouthpiece. There was a sharp, anguished cry from the other end of the line. "'Very good.' Martin murmured, turning away. That robot has done me a considerable favor. I should have realized the possibilities sooner. After all, a super-machine such as ENIAC would be far cleverer than a man who is merely an ordinary machine. Yes, he added, stepping into the hall and coming face to face with Tony LaMotta, who was currently working for Summit on loan. Man is a machine, and woman— Here he gave Miss LaMotta a look of such arrogant significance that she was quite startled. And woman, a toy. Martin amplified as he turned toward Theater One, where St. Cyr and Destiny awaited him. Summit Studios, outdoing even MGM, always shot ten times as much footage as necessary on every scene. At the beginning of each shooting day, this confusing mass of celluloid was shown in St. Cyr's private projection theater. A small but luxurious domed room, furnished with lie-back chairs and every other convenience, though no screen was visible until you looked up. Then you saw it on the ceiling. When Martin entered, it was instantly evident that ecology took a sudden shift toward the worse. Operating on the theory that the old Nicholas Martin had come into it, the theater which had breathed an expensive air of luxurious confidence chilled toward him. The nap of the Persian rug shrank from his contaminating feet. The chair he stumbled against in the half-light seemed to shrug contemptuously. And the three people in the theater gave him such a look as might be turned upon one of the larger apes who had by sheer accident got an invitation to Buckingham Palace. Dee, Dee Fleming—her real name was impossible to remember, besides having not a vowel in it—lay placidly in her chair her feet comfortably up, her lovely hands folded, her large, liquid gaze fixed upon the screen, where Dee, Dee Fleming, in the silvery meshes of a technicolor mermaid, swam phlegmatically through seas of pearl-colored mist. Martin groped in the gloom for a chair. The strangest things were going on inside his brain, where tiny styles still moved and readjusted until he no longer felt in the least like Nicholas Martin. Who did he feel like, then? What had happened? He recalled the neurons whose beady little eyes he had fancied he saw staring brightly into, as well as out of his own. Or had he? The memory was vivid, yet it couldn't be, of course. The answer was perfectly simple and terribly logical. ENIAC, Gamma, the ninety-third, had told him somewhat ambiguously just what his ecological experiment involved martin had merely been given the optimum reactive pattern of his successful prototype a man who had most thoroughly controlled his own environment and eniac had told him the man's name along with several confusing references to other prototypes like an ivan who and an unnamed Eager. the name for martin's prototype was of course disraeli earl of beaconsfield martin had a vivid recollection of george arliss playing the role Clever, insolent, eccentric in dress and manner, exuberant, suave, self-controlled, with a strongly perceptive imagination. No, 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 Dede said with a sort of calm impatience. Be careful, Nick. Some other chair, please. I have my feet on this one. said Ralph Saint Cyr protruding his thick lips and snapping the fingers of an enormous hand as he pointed to a lowly chair against the wall. "'Behind me, Martin. Sit down. Sit down. Out of our way. Now pay attention. Study what I have done to make something great out of your foolish little play. Especially note how I have so cleverly ended the solo by building to five cumulative pratfalls. Timing is all.' He finished. "'Now silence!' For a man born in the obscure little Balkan country of Mixolydia, Raoul St. Cyr had done very well for himself in Hollywood. In 1939, St. Cyr, growing alarmed at the imminence of war, departed for America, taking with him the print of an unpronounceable Mixolydian film he had made, which might be translated roughly as The Pores in the Face of the Peasant. With this he established his artistic reputation as a great director. Though, if the truth were known, it was really poverty that caused the poors to be so artistically lighted, and simple drunkenness which had made most of the cast act out one of the strangest performances in film history. But critics compared the poors to a ballet and praised inordinately the beauty of its leading lady, now known to the world as Dee Dee Fleming. Dee Dee was so incredibly beautiful that the law of compensation would force one to expect incredible stupidity as well. One was not disappointed. Dee Dee's neurons didn't know anything. She had heard of emotions, and under St. Cyr's bullying could imitate a few of them. But other directors had gone mad trying to get through the semantic block that kept Dee Dee's mind a calm, unruffled pool, possibly three inches deep. St. Cyr merely bellowed. This simple primordial approach seemed to be the only one that made sense to summit's great investment and top star. With this whip-hand over the beautiful and brainless Dee Dee, St. Cyr quickly rose to the top in Hollywood. He had undoubted talent. He could make one picture very well, indeed. He had made it twenty times already, each time starring Dee Dee, and each time perfecting his own feudalistic production unit. Whenever anyone disagreed with St. Cyr, he had only to threaten to go over to M.G.M. and take the obedient Dee Dee with him, for he had never allowed her to sign a long-term contract and she worked only on a picture-to-picture basis. Even Tolliver Watt knuckled under when St. Cyr voiced the threat of removing Dee Dee. "'Sit down, Martin,' Tolliver Watt said. He was a tall, lean, hatchet-faced man who looked like a horse being starved because he was too proud to eat hay. With calm, detached omnipotence, he inclined his gray-shot head a millimeter, while a faintly pained expression passed fleetingly across his face. "'Highball, please,' he said. A white-clad waiter appeared noiselessly from nowhere and glided forward with a tray. It was at this point that Martin felt the last styles readjust in his brain, and entirely on impulse he reached out and took the frosted highball glass from the tray. Without observing this, the waiter glided on and presented Watt with a gleaming solver full of nothing. Watt and the waiter regarded the tray. Then their eyes met. There was a brief silence. Here, Martin said, replacing the glass, much too weak. Get me another, please. I'm reorienting toward a new phase which means a different optimum." He explained to the puzzled Watt as he readjusted a chair beside the great man and dropped into it. Odd that he had never before felt at ease during rushes. Right now he felt fine, perfectly at ease, relaxed. Scotch and soda for Mr. Martin, Watt said calmly, and another for me. "'So, so, so, so. Now we begin. St. Cyr cried impatiently. He spoke into a hand microphone. Instantly the screen on the ceiling flickered noisily and began to unfold a series of rather ragged scenes in which a chorus of mermaids danced on their tails down the street of a little Florida fishing village. To understand the full loathsomeness of the fate facing Nicholas Martin, it is necessary to view a St. Cyr production. It seemed to Martin that he was watching the most noisome movie ever put upon film. He was conscious that St. Cyr and Watt were stealing rather mystified glances at him. In the dark, he put up two fingers and sketched a robot-like grin. Then, feeling sublimely sure of himself, he lit a cigarette and chuckled aloud. "'You laugh?' St. Cyr demanded with instant displeasure. "'You do not appreciate great art. What, what, What did you know about it, eh?' Are you a genius?" This, Martin said urbanely, is the most noisome movie ever put on film. In the sudden deathly quiet which followed, Martin flicked ashes elegantly and added, "'With my help, you may yet avoid becoming the laughing-stock of the whole continent. Every foot of this picture must be junked. Tomorrow, bright and early, we will start all over and—' Watt said quietly, "We're." Quite competent to make a film out of Angelina Noel, Martin." "'It is artistic,' St. Cyr shouted, "'and it will make money, too.'" "'Bah! Money!' Martin said cunningly. He flicked more ash with a lavish gesture. "'Who cares about money? Let it worry.'" Watt leaned forward to peer searchingly at Martin in the dimness. "'Raoul,' he said, glancing at St. Cyr, I understood you were getting your—your uh, new writers whipped into shape. This doesn't sound to me as if—' Yes, 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 St. Cyr cried excitedly. Whipped into shape, exactly. A brief delirium, eh, Martin? You feel well? You feel yourself? Martin laughed with quiet confidence. Never fear, he said. The money you spend on me is well worth what I'll bring you in prestige. I quite understand. Our confidential talks were not to be secret from Watt, of course." "'What confidential talks?' bellowed St. Cyr thickly, growing red. "'We need to keep nothing from Watt, need we?' Martin went on imperturbably. "'You hired me for prestige, and prestige you'll get. If you can only keep your big mouth shut long enough, I'll make the name of St. Cyr glorious for you. Naturally, you may lose something at the box office, but it's well worth—' Pazzerzhkuzk," roared St. Cyr in his native tongue, and he lumbered up from the chair, brandishing the microphone in an enormous, hairy hand. Deftly Martin reached out and twitched it from his grasp. "'Stop the film,' he ordered crisply. It was very strange. A distant part of his mind knew that normally he would never have dared behave this way, but he felt convinced that never before in his life had he acted with complete normality. He glowed with a giddy warmth of confidence that everything he did would be all right, at least while the twelve-hour treatment lasted. The screen flickered hesitantly, then went blank. Turn on the lights, Martin ordered the unseen presence beyond the mic. Softly and suddenly the room glowed with illumination, and upon the visages of Watt and St. Cyr he saw a mutual dawning uneasiness begin to break. He had just given them food for thought. But he had given them more than that. He tried to imagine what moved in the minds of the two men below the suspicions he had just implanted. St. Sears was fairly obvious. The Mixolydian licked his lips, no mean task, and studied Martin with uneasy little bloodshot eyes. Clearly Martin had acquired confidence from somewhere. What did it mean? What secret sin of St. Sears had been discovered to him? What flaw in his contract that he dared behave so defiantly? Tolliver Watt was a horse of another color. Apparently the man had no guilty secrets, but he too looked uneasy. Martin studied the proud face and probed for inner weaknesses. Watt would be a harder nut to crack, but Martin could do it. That last underwater sequence, he now said, pursuing his theme. Pure trash. You know, it'll have to come out. The whole scene must be shot from underwater. Shut up! St. Cyr shouted violently. But it must, you know, Martin went on, or it won't jibe with the new stuff I've written. In fact, I'm not at all certain that the whole picture shouldn't be shot underwater. You know, we could use the documentary technique. Raoul, Watt said suddenly. What's this man trying to do?" "'He's trying to break his contract, of course,' St. Cyr said, turning ruddy olive. "'It is the bad phase all my writers go through before I get them whipped into shape. In Lydia, "'Are you sure he'll whip into shape?' Watt asked. "'To me this is now a personal matter,' St. Cyr said, glaring at Martin. I have spent nearly thirteen weeks on this man, and I do not intend to waste my valuable time on another. I tell you, he is simply trying to break his contract. Tricks, tricks, tricks. Are you? Watt asked Martin coldly. Not now, Martin said. I've changed my mind. My agent insists I'd be better off away from Summit. In fact, she has the curious feeling that I and Summit would suffer by a misalliance. But for the first time, I'm not sure I agree. I begin to see the possibilities even in the tripe St. Cyr has been stuffing down the public's throat for years. Of course, I can't work miracles all at once. Audiences have come to expect garbage from Summit, and they've even been conditioned to like it. But we'll begin in a small way to re-educate them with this picture. I suggest we try to symbolize the existential hopelessness of it all by ending the film with a full four hundred feet of seascapes nothing but vast heaving stretches of ocean. He ended on a note of complacent satisfaction. A vast heaving stretch of Raoul St. Cyr rose from his chair and advanced upon Martin. Outside! Outside! he shouted. Back to your cell, you double-crossing vermin! I, Raoul St. Cyr, command it! Outside before I rip you limb from limb! Martin spoke quickly. His voice was calm, but he knew he would have to work fast. "'You see, Watt?' he said, clearly meeting Watt's rather startled gaze. "'Doesn't dare let you exchange three words with me, for fear I'll let something slip. No wonder he's trying to put me out of here. He's skating on thin ice these days.' Goaded St. Cyr rolled forward in a ponderous lunge, but Watt interposed. It was true, of course, that the writer was probably trying to break his contract, but there were wheels within wheels here. Martin was too confident, too debonair. Something was going on which Watt did not understand. All right, Raoul, he said decisively. Relax for a minute. I said relax. We don't want Nick here suing you for assault and battery, do we? Your artistic temperament carries you away sometimes. Relax and let's hear what Nick has to say. "'Watch out for him, Tolliver!' St. Cyr cried warningly. "'They're cunning, these creatures, cunning as rats. You never know—' Martin raised the microphone with a lordly gesture, ignoring the director. He said commandingly into the mic, "'Put me through to the commissary. "'The bar, please. Yes. I want to order a drink. Something very special. A—ah, a Helena Glinska.' "'Hello?' Erica Ashby's voice said from the door, Nick, are you there? May I come in? The sound of her voice sent delicious chills rushing up and down Martin's spine. He swung round, Mike in hand, to welcome her. But St. Cyr, pleased at this diversion, roared before he could speak. No, 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 no. Go. Go at once. Whoever you are. Out! Erika, looking very brisk, attractive and firm, marched into the room and cast at Martin a look of resigned patience. Very clearly she expected to fight both her own battles and his. I'm on business here, she told St. Cyr coldly. You can't part author and agent like this. Nick and I want to have a word with Mr. Watt. Ah, my pretty creature, sit down, Martin said in a loud, clear voice scrambling out of his chair. "'Welcome. I'm just ordering myself a drink. Will you have something?' Erica looked at him with startled suspicion. "'No, and neither will you,' she said. "'How many have you had already, Nick, if you're drunk at a time like this?' "'And no shilly-shallying,' Martin said blandly into the mic. "'I want it at once. Do you hear a Helena Glinska? Yes. Perhaps you don't know it. Then listen carefully take the largest napoleon you've got if you haven't a big one a small punch-bowl will do fill it half full with ice-cold ale got that and three jiggers of creme de menthe. nick are you mad erika demanded revolted and six jiggers of honey martin went on placidly stir don't shake never shake a helena glenska keep it well chilled and miss ashby we're very busy St. Cyr broke in importantly, making shooting motions toward the door. Not now. Sorry. You interrupt. Go at once. Better add six more jiggers of honey, Martin was heard to add contemplatively into the mic. And then send it over immediately. Drop everything else and get it here within sixty seconds. There's a bonus for you if you do. Okay? Good. See to it. He tossed the microphone casually at St. Cyr. Meanwhile Erica had closed in on Tolliver Watt. I've just come from talking to Gloria Eden, she said, and she's willing to do a one-picture deal with Summit if I okay it. But I'm not going to okay it unless you release Nick Martin from his contract, and that's flat. Watt showed pleased surprise. Well, we might get together on that he said instantly, for he was a fan of Miss Eden's and for a long time had yearned to star her in a remake of Vanity Fair. Why didn't you bring her along? We could have— Nonsense! St. Cyr shouted. Do not discuss this matter yet, Tolliver. She's down at Laguna, Erika explained. Be quiet, St. Cyr. I won't— A knock at the door interrupted her. Martin hurried to open it and, as he had expected, encountered a waiter with a tray. "'Quick work,' he said urbanely, accepting the huge, coldly sweating Napoleon in a bank of ice. "'Beautiful, isn't it?' St. Cyr's booming shouts from behind him drowned out whatever remark the waiter may have made as he received a bill from Martin and withdrew, looking nauseated. "'No, no, no, no!' St. Cyr was roaring. Oliver, We can get Gloria and keep this writer, too. Not that he is any good, but I have already spent thirteen weeks training him in the St. Cyr approach. Leave it to me. In Olivia. we handle—' Erica's attractive mouth was opening and shutting, her voice unheard in the uproar. St. Cyr could keep it up indefinitely, as was well known in Hollywood. Martin sighed, lifted the brimming Napoleon and sniffed delicately as he stepped backward toward his chair when his heel touched it he tripped with the utmost grace and savoir-faire and very deftly emptied the helena glinska ale honey creme de menthe ice and all over st cyr's capacious front st cyr's bellow broke the microphone martin had composed his invention carefully the nauseous brew combined the maximum elements of wetness coldness stickiness and pungency The drenched St. Cyr, shuddering violently as the icy beverage deluged his legs, snatched out his handkerchief and mopped in vain. The handkerchief merely stuck to his trousers, glued there by twelve jiggers of honey. He reeked of peppermint. I suggest we adjourn to the commissary, Martin said fastidiously. In some private booth we can go on with this discussion away from the—the rather overpowering smell of peppermint. In Mixo-Lydia, St. Cyr gasped, sloshing in his shoes as he turned toward Martin. In Mixo-Lydia we throw to the dogs, we boil in oil, we— And next time, Martin said, please don't joggle my elbow when I'm holding a Helena Glinska. It's most annoying. St. Cyr drew a mighty breath, rose to his full height, and then subsided. St. Cyr at the moment looked like a keystone cop after the chase sequence and knew it even if he killed martin now the element of classic tragedy would be lacking he would appear in the untenable position of hamlet murdering his uncle with custard pies do nothing until i return he commanded and with a final glare at martin plunged moistly out of the theater the door crashed shut behind him There was silence for a moment, except for the soft music from the overhead screen, which Dee Dee had caused to be turned on again, so that she might watch her own lovely form flicker in dimmed images through pastel waves while she sang a duet with Dan Daly about sailors, mermaids, and her home in far Atlantis. "'And now,' said Martin, turning with quiet authority to Watt, who was regarding him with a baffled expression, "'I want a word with you.' I can't discuss your contract till Raoul gets back, Watt said quickly. Nonsense, Martin said in a firm voice. Why should St. Cyr dictate your decisions? Without you, he couldn't turn out a box office success if he had to. No. Be quiet, Erica. I'm handling this, my pretty creature. Watt rose to his feet. Sorry, I can't discuss it, he said. St. Cyr Pictures make money, and you're an inexperienced... That's why I see the true situation so clearly, Martin said. The trouble with you is you draw a line between artistic genius and financial genius. To you it's merely routine when you work with the plastic medium of human minds, shaping them into an ideal audience. You are an ecological genius, Tolliver Watt. The true artist controls his environment, and gradually you, with a master's consummate skill, shape that great mass of living, breathing humanity into a perfect audience. "'Sorry,' Watt said, but not brusquely. "'I really have no time—' "'Your genius has gone long enough unrecognized,' Martin said hastily, letting admiration ring in his golden voice. "'You assume that St. Cyr is your equal. You give him your own credit titles, yet in your own mind you must have known that half the credit for his pictures is yours. Was Phidias non-commercial? Was Michelangelo? Commercialism is simply a label for functionalism, and all great artists produce functional art. The trivial details of Rubens' masterpieces were filled in by assistants, were they not? But Rubens got the credit, not his hirelings. The proof of the pudding's obvious. Why?" Cunningly gauging his listener, Martin here broke off. "'Why?' Watt asked. "'Sit down,' Martin urged. I'll tell you why St. Cyr's pictures make money. But you're responsible for their molding into the ideal form, impressing your character matrix upon everything and everyone at Summit Studios.' Slowly Watt sank into his chair. About his ears the hypnotic bursts of Disraeli and Rotomontad thundered compellingly. For Martin had the man hooked. With unerring aim he had, at the first try, discovered Watt's weakness—the uncomfortable feeling in a professionally arty town that money-making is a basically contemptible business. Disraeli had handled tougher problems in his day. He had swayed parliaments. Watt swayed, tottered, and fell. It took about ten minutes, all in all. By the end of that time, dizzy with eloquent praise of his economic ability, Watt had realized that while St. Cyr might be an artistic genius, he had no business interfering in the plans of an economic genius. Nobody told Watt what to do when economics were concerned. "'You have the broad vision that can balance all possibilities and show the right path with perfect clarity,' Martin said glibly. "'Very well.' You wish, Eden. You feel, do you not, that I am unsuitable material? Only geniuses can change their plans with instantaneous speed. When will my contract release be ready?" "'What?' said Watt in a swimming, glorious daze. "'Oh, of course. Hm. Your contract release—well, now—' "'St. Cyr would stubbornly cling to past errors until Summit goes broke,' Martin pointed out. Only a genius like Tolliver Watt strikes when the iron is hot, when he sees a chance to exchange failure for success—a Martin for an Eden." Hmm, Watt said. Yes. Very well, then. His long face grew shrewd. Very well. You, you get your release—after I've signed Eden. There you put your finger on the heart of the matter, Martin approved after a brief moment of somewhat dashed thought. Miss Eden is still undecided. If you left the transaction to somebody like St. Cyr, say, it would be botched. Erica, you have your car here. How quickly could you drive Tolliver Watt to Laguna? He's the only person with the skill to handle this situation. What situ—oh, yes, of course, Nick, we could start right away. But—Watt said— the Disraeli matrix swept on into oratorical periods that made the walls ring. The golden tongue played arpeggios with logic. I see, the dazed Watt murmured, allowing himself to be shepherded toward the door. Yes, yes, of course. Then suppose you drop over to my place tonight, Martin. After I get the Eden signature, I'll have your release prepared. Hm, functional genius. His voice fell to a low, crooning mutter, and he moved quietly out of the door. Martin laid a hand on Erica's arm as she followed him. "Wait a second," he said. "Keep him away from the studio until we get the release. Saint Cyr can still outshout me any time, but he's hooked." We, Nick," Erica said, looking searchingly into his face. "What's happened? Tell you tonight." Martin said hastily, hearing a distant bellow that might be the voice of St. Cyr approaching. When I have time, I'm going to sweep you off your feet. Do you know that I've worshipped you from afar all my life? But right now, get Watt out of the way. Hurry!" Erica cast a glance of amazed bewilderment at him as he thrust her out of the door. Martin thought there was a certain element of pleasure in the surprise. "'Where is Tolliver?' The loud, annoyed roar of St. Cyr made Martin wince. The director was displeased, it appeared, because only in costumes could a pair of trousers be found large enough to fit him. He took it as a personal affront. "'What have you done with Tolliver?' he bellowed. "'Louder, please,' Martin said insolently. "'I can't hear you.' St. Cyr shouted, whirling toward the lovely star who hadn't stirred from her rapturous admiration of Deedee Dee in Technicolor overhead. Where is Tolliver? Martin started. He had quite forgotten Didi. Dee Dee. You don't know, do you, Didi?" Dee Dee? He prompted quickly. Shut up! St. Cyr snapped. Answer me, you—he added a brisk polysyllable in Mixolydian—with the desired effect. Dee, Dee wrinkled her flawless brow. Tolliver went away, I think. I've got it mixed up with the picture. He went home to meet Nick Martin, didn't he? See? Martin interrupted, relieved. No use expecting Deedee Dee to. But Martin is here! St. Cyr shouted. Think! Think! Was the contract release in the rushes? Dee, Dee asked vaguely. A contract release? St. Cyr roared. What is this? Never will I permit it! Never! 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 Didi, answer me! Where has Watt gone? He went somewhere with that agent, Didi said. Or was that in the rushes, too? But where? 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 They went to Atlantis, Didi announced with an air of faint triumph. No, shouted St. Cyr. That was the picture. The Mermaid came from Atlantis, not—what? Tolliver didn't say he was coming from Atlantis, Dee Dee murmured, unruffled. He said he was going to Atlantis. Then he was going to meet Nick Martin at his house tonight and give him his contract release. When? St. Cyr demanded furiously. Think, Dee Dee. What time did—Dee Martin said, stepping forward with suave confidence. You can't remember a thing, can you? But Dee was too subnormal to react even to a Disraeli Matrix. She merely smiled placidly at him. Out of my way, you writer! roared St. Cyr, advancing upon Martin. You will get no contract release. You do not waste St. Cyr's time and get away with it. This I will not endure. I fix you as I fixed Ed Cassidy. Martin drew himself up and froze St. Cyr with an insolent smile. His hand toyed with an imaginary monocle. Golden periods were hanging at the end of his tongue. There only remained to hypnotize St. Cyr as he had hypnotized Watt. He drew a deep breath to unleash the floods of his eloquence. And St. Cyr, also too subhuman to be impressed by urbanity, hit Martin a clout on the jaw. It could never have happened in the British Parliament. End of Part 1 of The Ego Machine by Henry Cutner.